so what, whatever you just talked about in your groups, would you be willing to just share with the open community? It could be like, it could be, you could just repeat yourself. It's not awkward for the people around you. It's okay. Just repeat yourself for the broader community. We got one up here. Okay, so we were discussing um, verse 12 and 13. Like halfway through verse 12, he says, if we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So that sounds like a contradiction, right. but I'm just thinking it's like a lack of understanding. So if like there could be some elaboration on that, because I don't quite understand like what you right. mean by that. Yes, yes, yes. It does. It, it does come off like a contradiction. If we disown him, he will also disown us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, because he cannot disown himself. Now, it comes off like a contradiction uh, uh, because it, and it has to do with it, the, broader, the broader context. And actually, this, the reason why it plays with us is because we've so often received that verse. If you're faithless, he'll remain faithful. We've so often taken that verse out of its context and referred to it and used it in a way that, it, that does become problematic in the context. Like, it does actually create an immediate, uh, an immediate contradiction. Uh, so I would say, and, it, and I would actually have to say it has a lot more to do with the, the, the being called to do a thing that's very difficult. Join with me in suffering to do that thing. I am, I am enchained because of this thing, but, the, the, but this is a similar sentence, sentiment. But God's word is not chained. I actually think he's saying a similar thing here. Where, where it's like if you disown him, if you actually decide Jesus didn't raise from the dead, he, he, this, is all, this is all a sham, and I'm not, I'm not actually going to surrender to the leadership of Jesus anymore. This, is all, this, this isn't real. I'm walking away. Well, the, 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 immediate cons the obvious consequence of that is that he will disown you. When you get there and you say, Lord, Lord, he's going to be like, I don't know who you are. But if you are faithless to the thing. So it's, it has to do with how we apply the word faith. If we, are, if we are not faithful to the thing that he called us to do, if we are faithless to the life that he has called us to lead, he remains faithful to that thing which he has called you to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's almost like the mission of God, the ministry of God, the redemptive purposes of God do not stop when you stop. So if you are faithless because of all this suffering, because of being in chains, if you stop running the race, if you stop planting the field, if you stop listening to, command, to your commanding officer, and you, you become faithless, it doesn't mean that he stops being faithful to the thing which he called you to do. And, and yes, if you have like a moment of weakness or frailty, he's still committed to you too. If you haven't like disowned him, you're just weak. You just can't be faithful. I think he's still faithful to you too. Yes, but that's not the primary thrust of the verse. Do we hear that? And if you hear me say, I just, this is not the sermon. This should be a sermon for a different time. But if you hear me say, God doesn't need you. He's going to do what he wants to do with or without you. If your gut response is, oh, that's kind of sad, there's something broken in you about mission, about leadership, about ministry, like that you, that, like you want it to depend on you somehow. And, but you need to get to a place when I say the mission of God actually doesn't depend. He's going to do what he wants to do with or without you. He's going to be faithful to his redemptive purposes with 
your cooperation or without it. He's inviting you as a gift, as a joy, as a pleasure to use you when he does not have to use you. But if you receive that as like good news, like it should be like liberating news, very freeing news, then that's like good. You're in like a really good place. Does that make sense? Other things. <laughs> that's not the same. <laughs> Other things. Um, what stuck out to me was not only verse 13, but um, num- verse 1. I connected it to 13, yeah. which, um, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I always replace that word with grace with mercy. Yeah. Because um, sometimes when we sin or we do something, we, um, if we need to always remember that that's where our strength comes in, that grace yes. and that mercy. Yes. And when we start to forget that, we fall away even more. Yes, and, yes. Um, and then I just connected that with 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Yes. Which is, I thought there was just a big connection between the first verse and the last one. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's exactly right, because it's like when we become, when we haven't disowned him, but we're becoming maybe like Timothy, maybe this is why he's writing it to Timothy, when we become weak, when we're having a crisis, when we want to walk away from this thing, he not only remains faithful to the thing that he's called us to do, he's still remaining faithful to us in our weakness, in our frailty. And he's inviting us to stand firm in the strength of his grace because he cannot don't disown himself. He considers you and your, his commitment to you a commitment actually to himself. That's amazing. That's amazing. And for, him, for you to actually say like, Stepping, if I try to step out of the strength of his grace and try, what you're stepping into there is your own strength. You see that, right? You can be in your own strength or you can be in the strength of God's grace. Not both. Pick one. And you do, if you pick your own strength, you do exactly what Adrian just talked about. You start to wander and you start to become even actually more fragile. That's great, Adrian. Yeah. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Yes. I just underlined some words that I felt like were highlighted. Mm-hmm. And the first one was commanding officer. Yeah. So this city of Tampa, you know, down by McDill is classified as central command. So uh, that stuck out to me. Sure. That God is our commanding officer. In the same way we have a natural military, we also have a spiritual military Mm. and we all have a call on our lives that's very significant yeah and i also underlined the victor's crown because that is something awaiting us in heaven that's a promise that we have an eternal reward Um, i also highlighted insight because without the insight of the holy spirit we can't fulfill our assignments here on earth that's right yeah, and it's actually those, those images that I want to spend, like, most of our time on this morning, those exact images. Um, if you'd let me jump in, if we just for a moment, if we did the, if we did the, the hermeneutics of occasion, um, the hermeneutics of occasion would be like, it's almost like what uh, resurrection scholars would do if there was no evidence, if there was no zero credible evidence to the reality of the resurrection, there's still actually evidence because you can do the hermeneutics of occasion. Uh, 
which means if there's something that, that actually happened in history that's significant, there will be ripple effects around it, the people who witnessed it, the years following, and you can study the ripple effects of a thing and almost do backward, do backward study. And you can actually, apart from any like direct evidence of the resurrection, you can just study changes in the mind, the, the theological thought of, of uh, uh, Jewish people. You can do almost geopolitical shifts that happened within the years that followed. And you put all that, you integrate all that information, and you would come to the conclusion that a Jewish man around this area it was, was at least rumored to be resurrected from the dead without any credible evidence of it, a direct evidence of it happening. That's the hermeneutics of occasion. Uh, you could do the same thing with like an, an event like a, a significant historical event like 9-11. If, there was, if somehow 100 years from now there was no like video or witness or reporting, which this wouldn't happen, please, I, I hope this doesn't happen, but if there was like no direct evidence that that happened, you could actually just study the events surrounding it, the years to come, major shifts in the way that people understand like national security, major shifts in the way that people travel, all this kind of stuff, and you would integrate all that information and you would say, you know what, I think in the fall of 2011 there was a major uh, uh, act of terrorism in the Western Hemisphere, in, in, in the United States of America. So that's the hermeneutics of occasion. If we apply that understanding to 2 Timothy, here's what I want to say. I actually think there's a lot of evidence here to say that Timothy is going through something like a midlife crisis. Because if you, especially last week, if you look at, if you look at the way that Paul is saying, we don't just study the direct things that Paul is saying, but if you look at everything around it, talking to Timothy and saying, listen, do you remember when we put our hands on you and we put a gift in you? Like we, we acknowledged the gift of God in you. Fan that into flame. Fan it into flame. Don't let it die. Don't let it die. And you're, we did not, we didn't, I have, I, I've got no idea where that spirit of timidity and fear came from. The timidity and fear that you have that you're living into because the spirit of God is power and love and self-discipline. And, and understanding what could be happening in the life of Timothy that would provoke this kind of a letter from Paul. And now here, for Paul to say, listen, you have got to be strong. You have got to be strong in the, in, in the strength of the grace of Christ Jesus. Stand in that. Stand in it. And join in me in my suffering. Join me in it. Almost to say, don't leave me. <laughs> don't walk away from this suffering. Don't do it. Join me in this suffering. I think there's a lot of uh, 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 indirect and contextual evidence to suggest that Timothy is going through something like uh, uh, a midlife. He's not quite in his midlife, but something like a crisis of ministry, of vocation. After being in a thing, after be, saying yes to Jesus and saying yes to him over and over and over again in a position of leadership over human beings and being there for six, seven, eight, nine years and then suddenly thinking, this is all, was this, any of this worth it? Was any of this worth it? And the current situation I'm in, people talking, talking about me from the inside, false teachers on the inside, people attacking me on the inside, people not believing in my leadership because of my age or my culture, my ethnicity, people, and then on the outside, we're getting persecution all, all the time, we're under threat all the time. Is literally any of this worth it? Is, Jesus, is, is any of this real? Is any of this real? And is it worth it? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a ministry 
crisis, a midlife ministry crisis. And some of you have. Some of you have. I know some of you have. And some of you are there right now. I know that you are. And some of you think that you have one, but you have not yet. And some of you are, are going to have one in the future, and you should, you should get ready. You should get ready. And this is the thrust of, of Paul, to say to Timothy in that moment, in that moment of like, I'm, I just want to walk away from this. Is this worth it? Paul says, be strong. Stand in the strength of grace. Stand in the strength of the grace of Christ Jesus. And join me in suffering. Notice he doesn't say, man, it gets better. It gets better. This is just a season. This is just like a hard week, hard couple months. Hang in there. All this is going to blow over. He says, join me in my suffering. Join me in it. This is exactly what you signed up for. This is exactly it, all of it. This is all, all Paul sees is like, yep, yes, yes, yes. This is exactly what you signed up for, yes. Join me, join me in it. And I think some of us need that message this morning while I fix my podium. Underground. <clears throat> Paul uses these three images to sh add shape and dimension to this invitation to Timothy to join him in his suffering. And I'm just going to focus on the first two this morning. He says, suffer with me like a good soldier. Don't get entangled in civilian affairs, but rather, but rather please your commanding officer. I think what Paul's trying to say here is that the suffering you experience, if that suffering is resulting from your obedience to Jesus, that's redemptive suffering. That's good and right suffering. But man, I think he's telling Timothy, you're going through a whole bunch of suffering that actually isn't good or right or redemptive. It's actually totally wasted because you're, you're receiving it because you're in submission to other people. You're doing things not out of submission to your commanding officer, but you're doing things out of submission to civilians, out of uh, other people. And the suffering that you incur on those terms, that's wasted. That's wasted. Back in April, we were... Um, we were asking the, uh, you know, I, I live kind of close to this uh, Belmont Heights uh, housing community. It's where we're trying to do like microchurch ministry stuff. And about a month ago, we asked the management of this massive, you know, housing community, we asked them, could we run a soccer, a toddler soccer program on Saturday mornings for your whole community? And um, the reason we did that is because in the fall, we, we, like, we're trying to find something for Landon, our three-year-old. We were try trying to find somewhere for him to play soccer. And there's nothing anywhere close to Ebor or East Tampa. And we're like, where's the closest thing? The closest thing's down in South Tampa. You've got to pay like 120 bucks for six weeks. We take him down there, and they're like, half the time, they're not playing soccer. Some, of you, uh, some others had kids in that thing, too. It's like they're playing tag half the time. They're like, they're like playing a random, like, go collect the balls game or something. Like, it actually has very little to do. It's like you're pay paying for an hour of daycare on Saturday mornings. That's what it is. And it's masked as soccer. And that's not what it is. And I just thought, instead of paying $120 and driving our kid all the way down to South, why don't, why don't we just do it close by? Why don't we do it in a neighborhood where people don't have access to something like that? And we can just run it because that looked super easy. Why am I paying money for that? Uh, so we decided, let's just throw one in Belmont Heights. And we asked the management about it. Management was like, yeah, that's awesome. Let's do it. And uh, we were going to do it Saturday mornings right in the middle of their, their big, like, community. There's, like, this yard. 
and the, the management person, was, it was in the middle of April, and she was like, when do you think we could do it? And I said, we could do it every Saturday in May, so it's two weeks away. And the reason I said that was because I, I thought they probably had some kind of communication system in place where they could just, they could just tell everybody, hey, soccer, Saturday mornings, bring your three- to five-year-old, you know? So I thought, two weeks away, that's fine. And, or they, they'd have some kind of announcement board or something, where some, some pipeline of communication to everybody living in the, the community. Well, about a week later, I find out, like, there is no such thing. The, the, the way that people find out about things is you've got to run around to, to just go door-to-door -door and tell people about stuff or put up flyers or whatever. There's, like, 700-some units in this community. So I'm like, so once they told me that, I was like, no, 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 we're not doing May. We are not doing May. Because I've got like one week to go around and try to, try to tell 700-some units about that. I'm not, no, no, no. We need more time. If you're putting, if we have to like advertise and recruit for this, which is fine, I just didn't know that. I've got to have more time. So we're going to do it in the fall. We'll do it in the fall. And they, and then the person I was talking to was like, yeah, that's fine. But then I got a call later from a different manager that said, hey, could you please just run it this May, every Saturday? And I'm thinking like, oh, they love the community so much, they want it this bad, and I'm like, hey, I'm open to it. Like, is there a reason why you want it to happen so quick? And he, and they, they, he did, and this is just how this kind of stuff happens sometimes. He just said, listen, we were really counting on you to fulfill one of our requirements for our grant that we receive. So we actually don't care that much how many people come. We just need to say that you did it in order to fill the, fulfill the stipulations of the grant that we receive. Now, I'm, on the, I'm trying to be a little bit diplomatic on the phone, but listen, this is, I have instructions from a commanding officer to, to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God among and with a community of people. And I'm willing to like love and serve and do what's necessary with management. But if you're literally trying to do something that has nothing to do with this community of people and you just want to fulfill, that, that, that's a civilian affair. I, I, am, I have no obligation to you at all. But if I were to say yes, all that would do would incur on me a whole mess of cost and suffering that would have nothing to do with my commanding officer. Do you see what I'm saying? So I, I, I'm like, listen, no, I'm doing fall because I actually want human beings there and like three to five-year-old children. And if I'm going to like pay a bunch of money for equipment, almost guaranteed sickness all five weeks because they're three to five-year-olds, <laughs> lose my only day off Saturday to do it, you know, and, and I'm going to run around with like who knows how many kids or whatever. It's like if I'm going to do all that for four to six weeks, it is not going to be for you. But, but, but I, think, I think myself included, there's a lot of us who have like a sea of demands who put in that situation might say, and me in a previous maybe two years ago probably would have said, I just want to love, I just want to serve anybody, I just want to say yes, I just want to, I just want to, you guys need me to do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, and there's actually like very little discernment about who is my master and to whom am I called. As leaders, our lives are lived in a sea, a sea. You know what I know. As leaders and missionaries, our lives are lived in a sea of civilian affairs all the time. 
And those civilian affairs consistently turn into, flip into, an unending list of demands on your life and on your time. But behind every demand that came from an affair is that essential question, who is your master and what has he asked you to do? Now listen, this verse has been used to justify some jacked up things. Like, just preach the gospel and don't mess with any of the people that you've been entrusted with. They're just got a mess. Keep your distance from them. All them, all them civilian affairs that are coming up in the community, people who are so needy, don't mess with them. Don't mess with them. Just preach, preach and lead and be distant or whatever. But listen, those, those to whom, what if, what if the commanding officer's request on you is care for this pocket of civilians? And those civilians say, I have an affair, I have a need. I have a need and I need you to meet it. What are you going to do? Say, I'm sorry, that's not my world. It is actually your world to deal with the problems that are emerging among the people to whom you've been called. So I don't want to like abuse the verse to do something that it's not meant to do. Paul himself, later on, just, just a few verses after, he says this. He says, uh, he says, this is my gospel for which I suffer now, for which I am in chains now. So I'm in chains, I'm in suffering for the gospel, for this my, my gospel. And the immediate next verse, what does he say? The immediate next verse, he says, uh, Therefore, I endure all these things, that those who would obtain salvation might have eternal glory in Christ Jesus. So he says, I'm suffering for the gospel, this gospel that I have. And then he says, I'm suffering for these people. Both, yes, both. We suffer for the gospel, but the gospel has real life implications for people. People that we walk with, we're called to, we serve, we lead, we shepherd. I suffer for civilians, you suffer for civilian matters. It's not a question of the work itself, it's a question of submission and obedience. Never submit to an array of civilian affairs. Only, you can do the, you can do the exact same work but what's the source of that submission? To whom are you submitted? Paul says, join me in the right suffering, the good suffering, the redemptive suffering that comes from obeying King Jesus and don't get distracted and wore down by wasted suffering. Friends, God has, this sounds, this sounds a little harsh, but it's good news. God has enough suffering for you. Don't go find more. He has enough. And it's good. It's good for you. Every ounce of it that he allows into your life, it's good for you. Don't go looking for more. He says, suffer with me like a good soldier. And he says, suffer with me like an athlete. Like an athlete. An athlete who does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. On April 21st in 1980, a 26-year-old woman named Rosie Ruiz was crowned the women's champion of the Boston Marathon. With a near record finish, by the way, of 2 hours and 30 minutes. If you do the calculations on that, that's 5 minutes and 46 seconds per mile for 26 miles. 
There ain't one person here can, who can run one mile in five minutes, 46 seconds. I know this. Not one. 26 miles. She gets, she, she, she gets the, the medal. She interviews with the media and on TV. She, she gets all this acclaim. She goes home. And three days later, there has amassed an unavoidable amount of evidence alleging that Ruiz had taken a subway from the start of the race all the way to the 25th mile marker. Witnesses had emerged from the subway who, who were riding with her on the subway. And when they, when they asked her, why are you wearing a marathon number? She said, I hurt my ankle at the very start of the race, but I want to see the finish. So I'm riding the subway to the end because I want to see the finish. Then witnesses emerged who, who were standing in the crowd and watched her jump from the crowd into the race and start running the race at the 25th mile marker. She, she ran one mile, and then at the end of the, of the race, she collapsed into the arms of the stewards. The stewards carried her worn one-mile run body to the hydration station to see medics. And there's people all over the station, like getting hydrated, med medical, all this kind of stuff. She, and, and then she does all these interviews and, and, and gets, a, gets an award. They found out, they found out that she had, she had won one previous, she had ran one previous marathon, the New York Marathon. She placed an impressive 24th. That's actually very impressive to place 24th in the New York Marathon. And they found out that she rode a bus for 24 of the miles. Uh, uh, so, so, so uh, uh, Rosie Ruiz had a very defined skill. It was, not, it was not running. It was something else. It was public transportation. That was her very defined skill. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, it takes, it takes courage, innovation. It takes a lot. Listen, I, I think there's a lot of Christians in our time who are trying to take an Uber to the kingdom. I think they're trying to find a creative shortcut, a loophole, an easy way out of the costly way of Jesus, which is by definition, by definition in its nature, costly and sacrificial. And sometimes that Uber looks like the prosperity gospel. Sometimes it looks like creating a theological system that marries our comfort to our faithfulness and at the same time marries our suffering to some kind of sin in our life. I think sometimes that Uber looks like the unholy union of our faith to nationalism, which cheapens our obedience down to benign tasks like standing for a flag or praying the right prayers or voting the right way. I think sometimes that Uber looks like reframing mission to be, a so, to be simply social media advocacy, which is a version of faithfulness which cheapens the way of real mission without, it's, it's a way of doing mission without real cost among real messy people. Shortcuts to, the, to glory, shortcuts to eternity without any suffering will keep coming up again and again. We've, we have named a few now, but they're going to keep coming up again and again over time because human beings want it to be true. But it isn't. Because we don't make the rules of the race. We run it. And the rules of the race are set 
by a crucified God. We follow in the cruciform footsteps of that crucified God. N.T. Wright wrote it this way, the Christian called into cheerful confrontation with a world that resists the gospel mustn't look for easier activities on the side which would keep him or her busy without embodying the cutting edge and challenge of a costly gospel. You know the first person who knew that Rosie Ruiz did not run that race? Without, on, on the day of the race, without a shred of evidence, the first person who knew that she did not run it was Catherine Switzer. Catherine Switzer was the first ever woman to compete in the Boston Marathon. She ran all 26 miles with men running alongside her, verbally abusing her the whole way. If you've seen those pictures, those iconic pictures. And Catherine Switzer happened to be working commentary for the, t- for the, uh, the TV station that day. And she interviewed uh, uh, Ruiz after the, after the race. And she noticed, nobody else did, but Catherine, Catherine Switzer was the one who noticed. She didn't sweat enough. Her hair was too kept, was too well kept. And when asked what her intervals were, she did not know. And Catherine Switzer immediately knew she did not run that race. Because real recognize real, doesn't it? Many will arrive at the presence of Jesus after skipping the marathon. They'll be a little too well kept. Their hair will be nice. There's not enough sweat. They're going to look healthy. They're going to look strong. And when they get there, real is going to recognize real. And they're going to say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, I don't see any wounds on you. I don't remember any of your scars. I'm not sure if I know you. I hope when I arrive, I hope that I will have deep wounds that he had tended to, and when I stand before him, he'll remember. I remember that one. I remember that scar. I want to be weak in the knees. He'll need to hold me. I want to be full of scars and wounds. And I want, him to, hear, I want to hear him say, with his wounds, looking at me, well done. I remember all this. I remember it all. Well done. Well done. You want to know the rule book to the race that we run? Here's the rule book. The rules to run with him. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And if we disown him, he will also disown us. But if we are faithless, he'll remain faithful because he cannot disown himself. The worship team will come up. As we come to the table this morning, I want to receive this strong command from Paul to Timothy, which actually covers the entire passage. And I, uh, I, you know, I've, we've spent the majority of our time this morning talking about Paul's thrust to Timothy, join with me in this suffering. Join with me in this life of suffering. It is what it is. It's what you signed up for. Join me in it. But I need you to understand that command is actually nestled inside of a broader command from Paul that covers the whole passage. 
And that's this. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He says, join me with me in my suffering. There's no other avenue to go here, but in order to endure that suffering, you will need to know what it is to stand in the grace of Christ Jesus as opposed to your own strength. And this is a core work that Jesus has been doing in my life the last two weeks, two years, two years. You see, when I first uh, moved here almost two years ago, very quickly, I mean, within the first maybe two or three weeks, I started, when I would drive home from work, uh, from the office, we were at the old hub at the time, when I would drive home, I was experiencing maybe twice a week, on average, I would experience these physical episodes. I didn't know what it was. And I wasn't telling anybody about it. And eventually, I, I was talking to Jeremy about something totally different in his office, where, and he just... And we stumbled onto, I don't know how we stumbled into it, but he started talking to me about, about his experience with panic attacks. And he was, he was telling me, like, man, I was experiencing these for a while, and then he read something, he read a book or an article or something, and it, and it like, explained it to a T, what, he's been going, what he was going through. And he was like, man, when I read that, it was just like, I can't believe this is happening to me. It put words to it. And internally, I was like, that's happening to me. But I didn't say it out loud. It was, like, it was like a bit ironic that he was explaining how he kind of came to awareness. And he didn't know, but internally I was like, that's me. I'm driving home from the, I got to go up 15th Street from the hub. I go right by La Segunda Bakery about 5 o'clock every single day. I pull into La Segunda Bakery parking lot maybe twice a week. I got a gorilla standing on my chest. I'm breathing really hard. I don't, I don't know what's causing it. I can't get it to calm down. I just got to sit there. Sometimes I got to get out of the truck and just walk around the truck for a minute. I just got to let it pass, work its way out, and then I just drive the rest of the way home and act like it never happened. And I just didn't tell. Any, and, I, and even in that moment, Jeremy telling me, it was like this free moment to be like, me too. I experienced that too. But internally, I was just, for, like, I was just, I couldn't say anything. I couldn't say it. And the reason was because I was new here and it's because I just wanted to come off to all of you and to Jeremy and Brian and all the leaders and Stacy. I just wanted to come off as like super strong and put together and I don't want to be a burden to anybody. I don't want anybody to think I'm falling apart. And, and I, want, I don't want anybody to regret that they made the wrong decision because I can't handle it. I can't hang in the game here. I'm, not, I'm like, I'm fine. We're doing this. We're good. I wasn't telling anybody. And I, I was like kind of pushed over time to say something, say something. And I just never did. And eventually, that, I mean, that starts going away. And I just kind of lived with panic attacks maybe once or twice a week for 18 months. And we moved to the new hub, and my new spot wasn't La Saguna Bakery. It was the UFIT parking lot off Fowler. It was like that was the better. It was usually about five blocks away from wherever the office was, was when that was going to go down. And I needed to find somewhere to pull over. And I was in the middle of April. We were having a prayer and worship night in here. Some of you were here. And at the end of that night, I grabbed a mic, and I stood right here, and I looked at everybody in the room, and I said, we need to do some intercessory prayer for each other. And I think there's people in this room who are hiding something. <laughs> and you got to bring that junk into the light. And the el there's elders here. We're going to need to lay our hands on and pray for you. Don't, don't struggle alone. I was going hard. I was going hard on that. You remember. And I, and I dropped that mic and it hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, ooh. 
that might not be anybody else in this room. <laughs> that might just be me. That might just be me. I told Jamie, and eventually I told Brian, and eventually I told, uh, you know, there was a, the Ubuntu community was praying for us one night, and I told them, and I just started confessing that. And um, I just feel like I was, I've spent 18 months outside of the standing in the strength of God's grace because I spent those 18 months standing in my own strength. And it was not strong. It was not. And I was I was. it was almost like, underground people, this is the thing. I think, I think we get suffering, do we not? I mean, we, we talk about this pretty frequently. It felt like, oh, suffering again? We just talked about the, the Garden of Gethsemane like two weeks ago. Suffering again? Why are we doing this? Uh, but I, I actually think like we, 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 we're okay. We're engaged suffering. But I just want to ask you, are you willing to engage suffering in a way that stands in the grace of Christ Jesus, not your own? To not just embrace suffering and then like, and then wait, wait, wait for your sabbatical and then, oh gosh, that was really hard. But on a day-by-day basis to be experiencing all the costs that comes with it, all the trials that come with it, but, but doing so standing firmly in the strength of Christ Jesus. You know what that requires? It requires for you to be outside of your own strength. The perception you want to create for all the other leaders in the room who you think have their stuff together and they don't. For all the other leaders in the room who you think their microchurches are amazing, mine kind of sucks, but I have to put up like this front that we're good, I'm good, my thing's great, your thing's great, it's cool, we're all on the same page. You, know, you don't know how many times I've, you know, we, we'll have a microchurch leader just like drop off the face of the planet for like six months we, and they're not at anything and I'll just reach out, I kind of stalk people, some of you have been stalked by me before, like I'm just kind of like, where are you at, we haven't seen you in a while. I just kind of like track you down. It's like, I just want to grab coffee. It's no big deal. And then once we, once we get across the table, you know what they say? They say, my, my microchurch has been failing. And I was just embarrassed. I was just embarrassed. Or this thing, this moral failure I had in my life, and I just felt like you guys wouldn't want to deal with that. Guys, all that is is standing firm in your own strength, but your strength is fragile. You know how to step into something anti-fragile? It's to embrace your own weakness and stand firm in the strength of God's grace for you. It's the only way to embrace something anti-fragile. Your strength is so weak. My strength is weaker. Step in. Step in. Confession is the acknowledgement of your own weakness and the embrace of the strength of that grace. And it requires the acknowledgement of your own frailty to inherit that anti-fragile strength of God to you. If we die with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we disown Him, He will also disown us. If we are faithless, He will remain faithful to you and to the work that you're called to. As we come to the table this morning, I want you to come and receive the strength of God's grace for you. And within it, the source of the endurance of the suffering that lays before you. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And when you eat it, you do so in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when you drink it, you do so 
and remembrance of me. So this morning, I do want you to come to receive these elements, holding on, holding on to that thing that you've tried to stand in your own strength on. That thing that you've tried to persevere on your own, that you've hid and that you have not entrusted to Jesus for whatever reason. And I want you to come this morning, I want you to let it go. I want you to give it to him and then as a symbol of giving it to him, I want you to tell someone. Tell your, tell your best friend, tell your microchurch leader, tell your spouse. If you don't have anybody here that knows you, just tell me, just come tell me, I'm ready. Bring it in the light this morning and walk in the strength of God's grace for you, the elements this morning given for you.